Welcome to Plodcast, the most interestingly named podcast. Plodcast podcast. At any rate, welcome. My name is Douglas Wilson. I'd like to talk for a moment about what Christians should tolerate and what tolerance means. When the Apostle Paul first arrived in Rome, there were gladiatorial games that were running. They were going on down the street, and and Paul did not um, get a petition going. He didn't try to get some sort of movement going among the Christians to shut down the gladiatorial games. So in that sense, he had more important things to do. His task was to plant churches and to keep those churches from melting down or blowing up, uh, to keep them sound in the faith, to teach those who had professed the name of Christ how to live in a way that was consistent with that profession, and so on. If you look at the prophets, if you look at the arc of the scriptures as a whole, you can see that it is not only a possibility that eventually the gladiatorial games would be shut down by the Christians, but given the logic of the Christian faith, it was a necessity. But the yeast has to work through the loaf first. The yeast has to pervade the, uh, the whole thing before it starts having an effect. You can't simply say, we, we're here now, we have one Christian church, and so we are going to start issuing demands to the emperor to shut down the games. Now, because the apostle and because the churches were not demanding that the games be ended, you could say that there was a sense in which the early Christians tolerated the games. But tolerating the games in, in this sense, meaning that you're tolerating the games because you have bigger fish to fry, is not in any way, shape, or form giving approval to the games. So the Christians would say, if someone were pressed on it, what about, the, what about these um, awful bloodthirsty games down the street? What, what does your faith have to say about that? The Christian response would be, give us time. These things take time. The world is immersed in pagan darkness and we have if, if we're going to do something about it we need to build the infrastructure of that resistance we have to build build out the institutional church to say to change the metaphor you don't want to say to Dwight Eisenhower the day he arrives in England well the Germans are bad the Nazis are bad the German army is doing terrible things you need to invade tomorrow well he can't invade tomorrow. He needs to prepare. He needs to get set up. The The whole thing is this, um, it's a gargantuan task. And converting the world from pagan darkness to the era that the prophet Isaiah told us about when uh, on the mountain of the Lord there'll be a feast of fat things, uh, full of marrow, full of fat. When we have the glory of the coming kingdom set before us, and we look at how messed up everything was when Christ came, it is very easy to be impatient. And the Christian church is not revolutionary, it's reformational. That means that as reformational believers, we can be patient. Uh, the, the great historian Christopher Dawson put it this way, the Christian church lives in the light of eternity and can afford to be patient. So, when we say that the early church was tolerant of the games, tolerant of the gladiatorial games, that is simply to say that they had much bigger fish to fry, they had other things to do first, and when they finally got to the point where the games were the next thing, they shut them down, they shut the games down. So you don't want to say that because it took a couple hundred years 
for this to happen, two, three hundred years for this to happen, you don't want to say that the church was giving its approval. Now, this is relevant to us because some Christians look at the fact of the, they look at the Obergefell decision by the U.S. Supreme Court, which uh, established same-sex mirage. I don't, it's not marriage. It, you can no more have a homosexual marriage than you can have a four-sided triangle. But you can claim that it's marriage and you can penalize people for calling it something other than marriage. But what we've got is same-sex mirage, and we have it backed by the full force of the federal government. Now, the fact that we are not down at the county courthouse or any other place where they're registering um, these so-called marriages and not firebombing the courthouses, not fighting it tooth, not not fighting it with armed resistance, does not mean that we are tolerating it in the sense of approval. We are tolerating it in the same way that the Apostle Paul tolerated the games. So in the book of Revelation, it says that um, I have this against you, you tolerate that woman Jezebel. So the problem with the church there was that they were tolerant, but the tolerance that they were rendering was one of acceptance and approval, not the tolerance of, look, we're executing all these criminals and you happen to be at the end of the line. Uh, the fact that you, you know, you're know you hanging a, a hundred murderers, and if you hang 100 murderers, there will be a 98th one and a 99th one and a 100th one. Um, but the fact that you're doing, the fact that you don't do them first doesn't mean that you are tolerating them in the sense of approval. You're not applauding their crimes. You're not doing anything like that. So what happens is because we have a de facto tolerance where we have bigger fish to fry on the one hand, there's some Christians who want to slide into semi-approval or acquiescence in this. And so they want to tolerate same-sex mirage. They want to tolerate it as a fait accompli. This is just the way it is. We don't have to worry about it. We don't have to refuse to bake cakes. We don't have to refuse to do floral arrangements. We don't have to worry about all that because we're tolerating these things uh, because you know, that's just the way non-Christians are. That's just the way the Gentiles are. But there are two kinds of tolerance. There's the tolerance that knows how to prioritize, where we invade Normandy first and close in on Berlin much later. That That's one kind of tolerance. If you're invading Normandy and people saying, why are you leaving Berlin alone? Well, because this is how we get to Berlin. The, we establish churches, we plant churches, we maintain sound doctrine, so that down the road, we can shut down the games. That's not the uh, sole purpose, but that's something we are going to do. But if Rome was full of Christian churches, if there were hundreds of Christian churches, and there were tens of thousands of professing Christians in Rome, and it was 300 years later, and the games were continuing on as robustly as ever, and a lot of Christians had developed rationalizations or workaround uh, theologies for explaining how this is possible, uh, how the salt can be salt without being salty, how the yeast can be yeast without pervading the loaf, then something is radically wrong. So, yes, as a practical matter, we tolerate certain things that we don't approve of at all. But when we get there, we're going to show what we think of those things when we when the gospel logic works its way out. Oh, the we will be God. God in creation. God when I... 
One of the things we want to do here at Plodcast is a uh, short book review, a short book plug. And each session, I want to commend a book to you. And in this episode, I want to commend to you That Hideous Strength by C.S. Lewis. That Hideous Strength, I believe, is one of the most profound and prophetic novels of the 20th century. It's gripping, starts pretty slow, but by the time you're a few chapters in, it's a white knuckle ride. Um, And it it parallels or tracks uh, what Lewis argued in a book, another book he wrote around the same time, which was called The Abolition of Man. And basically, if you if you read the Abolition of Man, and you, which is a book about education, you will see that what he's describing there produces a particular kind of student. It graduates a particular product, a particular kind of man. What Lewis calls there in the Abolition of Man, men without chests. Well, in that hideous strength, the end product of this kind of education is. One of the protagonists of the story, a man named Mark Studdick. So he and his wife Jane are married. Not, they've not been married very long, uh, and they are not very happily married. They're not thriving in their marriage, and uh, they are both characterized by a distinct contrast. Mark Studdick is characterized by a lust to be included, what Lewis addressed in another essay called The Inner Ring. So when Lewis describes the inner ring, that's the lust that drives Mark Studdick. He wants to be with the in-group. He rejects and and leaves behind his old friends who were much uh, better for him, much healthier. He tries to get in with the progressive element at his college, and then he's lured and enticed over to the NICE, the National Institute for Coordinated Experiments. And he everywhere he goes, he finds there's another circle, another ring that's a little bit beyond him, and he has this drive to be included. He must be included. He must be in the know. He must be on the inside. Jane, on the other hand, has a morbid fear of being included. She wants to be left alone. She wants to be kept out. So Mark Studdick is taken up by the nice, and he is being driven until his moment, his great moment of repentance and rebellion, he's being driven to get in further, get in further, get in further. Uh, his wife, Jane, is adopted by the company at St. Anne's, a ragtag band of the resistance, uh, fighting the encroachments of these wicked ones, these evildoers. And sh- she is trying to keep her distance. And she's trying to be on your guard. Don't let them take you in. Don't don't lose your independence. And of course, her stiff resistance to surrender is one of the problems in the the Studdick's marriage. Well, this contrast, Mark wanting wanting to get in and Jane wanting to stay out, is wonderfully reconciled, wonderfully harmonized at the end by means of and a return to the medieval vision that was a, it was a central part of Lewis's project to promote. So if, um, if you're interested in getting the last drop of goodness out of that hideous strength, and why wouldn't you be interested in such a thing, I would encourage you to read a handful of books. I would read The Discarded Image by C.S. Lewis. And if that's too big a slog, there's an essay that's in Studies in Medieval and Renaissance Literature that is a essay-length 
summary of his thesis in the discarded image. So the discarded image, which gives you a glimpse of the medieval cosmology, um, Michael Ward's book, Planet Narnia, that describes how Lewis wove that medieval cosmology into the Narnia stories. Planet Narnia is one of the best books I've ever read. Um, then The Abolition of Man, which I've already mentioned, which he wrote around the same time, which is a prose account of the same basic point that he is trying to make. So this uh, third segment of Plodcast is, what, what shall we call it? What shall we name it? We could name it homartiology. That's from the Greek word for sin. It's interesting, if you go through the New Testament in like a Greek concordance, and you just start alphabetically, go through the alphas and then the betas and so on, and you look at every Greek word that's used in the New Testament that is describing a sin, the end result will be a lexicon of sin. So let's call it that. Here's our segment called a lexicon of sin. Now some people might wonder why, why on earth would you study sin? Well, I think that one of our problems is that we don't study sin enough, or when we study sin, we do it in in a fog with our eyes closed. What we should be doing is studying sin with our eyes open and the lights on and open Bibles in front of us. What does the Bible actually say about sin? So every uh, week on this on this podcast, what I'd like to do is take one Greek word that is descriptive of some sin or other, and we're going to be spending, uh, there's quite a few of them, so we're going to be spending a goodly amount of time in the alphas. So here we go. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest of Israel would enter into the holiest sanctuary in order to offer blood for his own sins and for the errors of the people. That word can be found in Hebrews 9, 7. So the priest would go in, he'd offer up blood for his own sins, and he'd offer up blood for the errors of the people. The word rendered errors here is agnoema. It's a broad term encompassing sins generally, and it has reference to sins committed in ignorance or sins that were committed thoughtlessly. So that's what the priest is doing. The priest is part of a uh, an educated class, educated in the laws of God, educated in the worship of God. They know what is prohibited and what's not prohibited. They know what the law says and what the law doesn't say. But in the ancient world, many of the regular people, many of the common people, wouldn't have copies of uh, the Bible themselves, and so there would be sins committed thoughtlessly or sins committed in error. And these are, this is, uh, agnoema is rendered as errors. Even though it's done ignorantly or thoughtlessly, the high priest still offers up blood to cover the sins of the people. Sin is defined as such by Scripture and not by the knowledge or intention of the one committing the sin. We have this hidden assumption that we often use to justify ourselves when we say, well, if you couldn't help it, it isn't sin, or if you didn't know, it isn't sin. And this is basically a Pelagian assumption that, that uh, sin is defined by the ability of the sinner to avoid it. If the sinner is unable to avoid it, then uh, what you have to do is say, well, that's not a sin at all if you, if you couldn't do otherwise. 
But uh, biblical Christians don't think of it that way. We we believe that sin is defined by Scripture, not by our abilities. Sin is defined by what God says is a sin. So if God says something's a sin, then it's a sin, whether or not we could successfully avoid it. In fact, the Bible tells us that we were born in bondage to sin. And if that's the case, if we are slaves to sin or in bondage to sin, then sin cannot be defined as that which I am free to do or not do. Sin is defined by Scripture and not by the abilities of the sinner. God in the time of the sickness, God in the doctor too. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.